how do you preach the gospel to yourself? Uh, Daniel is someone who has encouraged me in that, uh, in that doctrine, if you would, and in, 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 in the answer of that question, and I just want to give him time uh, to speak to you from God's Word on what it means to be encouraged in the good news of Jesus. Thank you, guys. Um, why don't we start with a word of prayer? God, thank you so much um, for your people that you are making for yourself a kingdom of priests from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Thank you that in the world, no matter what today or tomorrow holds, that you are still in control. I pray, God, that in this moment, um, we would trust that you're present with us. God, I, I, I think of your promises that you've promised never leave us, to leave us or forsake us, that you've promised that where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there in the midst with us. And I think, God, that you've, you promised us that Christ, you left so that we might receive the Spirit, and that you wouldn't leave us as orphans, but that we would have your Spirit to lead us into all truth. So, God, I pray that right now as we move into a time in the Word, but also as we hear the music sung and we break bread together, that we would be reminded that your Spirit is leading us into all truth and that we would believe that and, and have a full conviction that you are here present with us, in us, working through us. So we trust you for that now, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so... Joel mentioned the idea of um, talking about how do we preach the gospel to ourselves, and I know that for myself, I, I tend to learn things better from another person's experience or when they've gone through them. So I'm not going to give, gone through a situation, so I'm not going to give you a, a five-point plan on how to preach the gospel to yourself or four points on how to do this. We'll, we'll make some observations, we'll, we'll learn some things as we go, but I feel like in this context in particular, it's helpful if we walk through that experience with someone. And the, the scriptures are full of situations where somebody is going through a really hard circumstance and trying to preach the gospel to themselves in the midst of that. And we'll see some of those today, but the one I want to look at is Psalm 73. So if you could open up to Psalm 73, and I'll give you a moment to get there. All right. So I want to think of this as we go through this as a case study in what it means to preach the gospel to yourself, right? A case study just means an example, that we're looking at it where somebody's actually doing it. But I also want to point out that we're reading a poetry. This is a poem, right? And poetry is very personal. It's very intimate. It's very emotional. And it's also um, very imaginative. It, it carries a lot of imagery with it. So I would encourage you as we go through and read this that you, you try to identify with where this person is at. So this psalm is written by Asaph, he would have been a court musician underneath King David. He was appointed to lead the court musicians in the temple by King David. And um, this psalm is attributed to him. And um, so listen just as we go through. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, 
Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked and hard, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So my goal today, really, in going through this passage is to help you understand the necessity for preaching the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. The responsibility that we have to speak into our own lives, to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But I think that even that needs a little explaining, right? So what does the gospel mean? What do I mean by the gospel when I talk about the gospel? So what I'm saying is the good news that Christ became man, lived on earth, perfect life, um, was crucified, died, buried, rose again, but all, and that by faith in his name, you can have forgiveness of sins. But I also mean all the promises of God that come with that, right? Like when that happened, we're united with Christ and his death and resurrection, just like Nick read about from Romans 6 this morning, that we were buried with Christ and we rose with Christ. So that means we have these abundant promises that come to us through the gospel. So I don't just mean that narrow definition of the gospel of what we often talk about as what you need to believe in to get saved, but I mean all the benefits that come along with that as well. And by preaching that to yourself, what I mean is just talking it to yourself, telling it to yourself, speaking it to your heart to where you're at. So I just want to make that clear before we jump in. So let's go into the passage. What I'm going to do first is I'm going to just go through the passage, and we're just going to understand what's going on. And then we're going to come back out and see what, what do I mean by the fact that Asaph is preaching the gospel to himself in this passage. And then we're going to go through and make some final observations about things we, we should note about what this means for us, really some applications. Before I do that, though, I want to start with an image for you, right? 
So when I was preparing for this message, I came across this quote that I thought really exemplifies what I want to get across. And that is, um, it's a quote from a man named John Owen. And I just want you to think about this image. What he says is, when we say that a tree is firmly rooted, we do not say that the wind never blows. Right? So let's get this image down for you. So take a tree like the one outside the window here. Right? These are big trees. Or maybe a tree up in Druid Hill Park. Their roots go really deep. Maybe it's an oak, a chestnut, some other tree. But their roots go deep. It's strong. It's firm. It's 100, 200 years old. But that doesn't mean that that tree never faces a storm. It doesn't mean that there aren't winds that come along and try to blow that tree down. It also doesn't mean that the tree never loses a branch. It doesn't mean that there isn't pruning that happens. It doesn't mean that lightning never strikes. The tree still has storms that it weathers. And the Christian life is the same way, right? Like we can be really deeply rooted in who we are in Jesus and still face really difficult situations and circumstances, trials, difficulties. And that's what's happening in this passage. So I want you to keep that image in your mind as we go through and we'll come back to it at the end. So Asaph starts out in verses 1 to 3 with what I would call an introduction. And he introduces us to the passage by first giving us a promise. So in verse 1 he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's really important that this is where he starts, right? He starts with something that he knows about God. And he's not just making this up. He's taking this from the Old Testament scriptures, right? God had delivered his people from Egypt. He'd saved them. He'd promised to be good to them and to take them into a promised land. That's where Asaph's starting. But something's not connecting, right? Like he's having this experience that he describes in verses 2 and 3 and then goes into detail about later, right? So in 2 he says, but as for me, right? Do you, do you feel the difference there? Do you feel that kind of contradiction? Like, God, I know what you say, but I'm over here. But as for me, my feet had nearly slipped. My steps had almost stumbled. Asaph is having this contradiction between what he knows in his head, right? What he can recite from Scripture, and yet where his experience is. And he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's having this crisis of faith, right? And it's rooted in two things. It's rooted in, one, the fact that there's these wicked people who are doing really terrible things, and yet everything goes well for them. That's one part of it. The other part is that Asaph finds his heart in a place where he says, I want that. And that's almost the harder thing, right? Like, that's, that's the more difficult struggle. To look at somebody who's, who seems to have everything right about life, and yet is a terrible person. And to find your heart in the spot where you're, where you're envious of that, where you desire that, because it looks so much better than what you feel like you have right now. So Asaph wants to take us into this journey about this question between my head knowledge and my experience, between these seeming contradictions. And he, he goes into an explanation then in verses 4 through 15. And this is an explanation that doesn't hold anything back, right? Like Asaph doesn't play nice with God right here as if he has to protect God from the gory details. God knows. God knows that the wicked prosper. And so Asaph is very bluntly and directly honest with God. I mean, look at some of the language he uses, right? First, he really hits on the nature of their prosperity. So he says, they have no pangs until death. So they're pain-free. That's how it looks to him. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're well-nourished. They have everything they seem to need. 
and more so. They are not in trouble as others are. There's less stress. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Just less difficulty in life. Their prosperity, it's physical, it's emotional, it's financial. It looks so much better than what Asaph has. And then he goes on further, right? This imagery that starts in verse 6 and goes down through verse 9 is really vivid. So I want to take you into it and try to understand a a bit of it a little bit more, right? He says pride is their necklace. What does this mean? It means that their pride, their arrogance, it's like what they put on their neck for you to look at when you see them. Right? A necklace is something that adorns, that draws attention. So they've got like this medal of pride they wear around their neck. They're not ashamed of their pride. They're wanton about it. They're open. They're flamboyant about it. They want you to know that they have it all together. And he says the same, similar things about violence, right? It's not just their pride. Their violence is like the very clothes they wear. It wraps them around. It covers them. These are not... These are not the kind of sins of polite people, right? These are not the pencil thieves. These are not the people who tell white lies, the people that often were tempted to just dismiss as saying, oh, that's not so bad. These are the people who are doing terrible things. And Asaph wants to make that clear. He's not having a crisis for no reason. These people are terrible people. The imagery goes further. He says their eyes swell out through fatness. They're gluttons. They have more than enough. They're wanton. Their hearts overflow with follies. So like how he started outside, now he's working towards the inside of their person, right? He's going down into their hearts. Like their heart is a fountain, an ever-flowing stream of wickedness and evil. And then it comes up through the mouth. And they speak openly against God. It's like they talk against God like the way the model struts down the runway. Right? That's the image he has here. That's how open it is. That's how much they want you to see it. There's no way God can't know about this. That's one of the points Asaph is trying to get across here. Like, God knows. You know God. So he gives us a summary then. He says, Behold, in verse 12, These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. But kind of more disheartening is verses 10 and 11, right? Where he says that, Look, God, everybody sees this, and they basically say, you can't know what's going on, God. Like, there's no way, right? Like, if God knew something about this, he would do something. I think a lot of times when we're tempted to question God, we're really tempted to question two things, and, and they both show up in this passage, and I've said this before, so um, some of you may have heard this from me before. One of the things we're tempted to question is that God loves us. And that's that as for me, right, back in verse 2. Asaph has this experience of like, does, does, am, am I really part of the people of God? Do I really have all the, the promises and the benefits of being part of the people of God? Does God love me? And then the other thing that we're often tempted to question when we feel like things aren't going well or when we're having these crises is, does God really know? Or in other words, is God really all-powerful? Like, is he, is he limited in some way? Maybe he doesn't know what's going on, or maybe he does know, but he can't really intervene. I had a really vivid um, experience of seeing this worked out earlier this week when somebody who was talking about their, an illness in a loved one basically said this exact same thing, that I, I can't believe in a God who would do this, and 
I, 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 just, I just can't. Like, there's no way. How, how can children suffer and die and there be a good God? So these are real, quest- real questions that we face and our culture faces. I, I think we all know these are real questions, right? Like, we just had an election. Like, right? Like, it, it's really clear that there's bad people. They end up in powerful places no matter which party you're from. Like, there, there's no question about that. I, I don't think I need to harp on the reality of this because we know it. So, next, we move to verses 13 through 15, which is kind of a contrast of the righteous with the wicked. So, Asaph has gone through and detailed out what the experience of the wicked is, what it looks like to him, and then he basically turns to himself as an example of somebody who's trying to live righteously, to live a good life. And by good life, I mean in obedience to God. And he says basically, look, I suffer from God's... I suffer from God's injustice because there's no benefit to holy living. I suffer from rebuke. I suffer from uncertainty. Like, what's, what's the point of being a Christian? What's the point of believing in God if, if all it means is sitting and watching everybody else have a good time and not having any joy or delight? This sounds really hard, right? But all this really is like verses like Hebrews 11, right? That faith, is the assurance of things unseen, that it's the belief in things hoped for, right? Which, which communicates that there's a reward to faithful living, which is also said in Hebrews 11. And so Asaph is saying, basically, look, God, where's the reward? Like, I see everybody else that's really against you benefiting, and all I end up with is a sense of guilt, a sense that you're unjust, and an uncertainty about what I should even do. This is a really dark place. And I want to take a moment just to sit here and try to identify with where Asaph is at. This is heavy. I know you're, all your faces are like, oh, like what is he preaching about? Um, this is really heavy, but I think we have to sit here if we understand the gospel before we get to it, right? Are you, and and what, the question I would pose to you in all this is are you comfortable sitting in this darkness? Have you come to terms, have we come to terms with the fact that when we embrace the Christian faith, we embrace the facts that we're sinners and we live in a sinful and fallen world? It's dark. It's hard. There's real struggles. There's real sin. There's a, there's a real fight. There's genuine suffering. We, we do so well at hiding away suffering, right? In the hospitals, with social workers, with even ourselves, right? Like we try to find the easiest way to live a pain-free existence. I was actually reading a, a New York Times article this morning that was about shopping for a couch. And the way it ended basically was like, millennials want a pain-free shopping experience. And that means ordering a couch online that's delivered to their house and that they can easily get upstairs. Like, they they don't want to have to go through the trouble of arranging to find a few friends to carry a couch up a set of steps. Like, that's kind of crazy. Right? That's kind of silly. And so we, we, we take steps in little incremental ways to try to hide 
pain, to make our lives more easy. And I, I'm not saying there's something wrong with being comfortable. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with ordering a couch online that's delivered to your second story apartment either. But I'm saying that there is like this, this pervasive attitude to us and our culture, because we're part of our culture, to where we're not comfortable living in that suffering, despairing moment. And one of the things I want us to see that we'll get back to later on is that as Christians, we can and we should because it matters. So now, finally, after all that heaviness that I've just laid on you, and verse 16 where Asaph basically says, I'm worn out. How am I supposed to understand this? We get to the turning point. And the turning point is so beautiful and so simple, right? It's simple, but it's so complex. Like, we're, basically, we're spending the whole message today talking about this turning point, and Asaph puts it in one sentence, which is, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting to me in this passage um, that Asaph doesn't make it more complicated, right? Like, it's not like I sat down and studied my Bible for an hour and prayed for 30 minutes and took communion, and then I understood, right? He doesn't give us this, this set series of steps that we need to take to make sense of the world. But what he does instead is he takes us to the place where God is and where the people of God are and where the revelation of God is. Asaph is not the first person in Scripture, though, that's done this experience. Like I mentioned earlier, there's others that are like this, right? And so I think it's good to step back and look at the broader picture, right? Elijah, remember the prophet on Mount Carmel, where he challenged the prophets of Baal? And then he has this moment of kind of despair afterwards because he runs all the way back to the capital, expecting this kind of revolt against Ahab and Jezebel. And then Jezebel tells him, I'm going to take your life, Elijah. And Elijah basically puts his tail between his legs and runs into the wilderness to hide in a cave. But God meets him there. God meets him in the cave. Like that's where God came to him. Another example would be like Peter, right? Like Peter in the New Testament, he denies Christ three times. Three times he's asked, do you know this man? And he says he doesn't in the strongest language he can. And yet, after Christ is risen, Christ meets him and restores him. This is not an isolated experience to Asaph. And the reason I tell you those stories or draw your attention to them is to remind you that the turning point in both of those stories also is this encounter with God, like whether it's Peter or Elijah. Because there's this sense in all those stories that these people get to the bottom of themselves and all they have to hold on to is this belief that God is still good and sovereign and in control. And there's some, like Asaph says, there's some way to understand this. Like, it's like that in this darkness, there's, there's some little ray of light that still gives hope. There's an old song um, called Sometimes a Light Surprises that I think captures this really well. So I just want to read the lyrics to you. That you can be, basically, this idea that you can be in a really dark place, and then all of a sudden God shines in on you and helps you understand. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. 
It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again, a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. Asaph hears this when he walks into the sanctuary of God because that's where God's presence is, that's where God's revelation is, and that's where his people are. So let's break that down a bit, right? Asaph worked in the temple. So in a sense, he's just going about his daily routine. But in another sense, he's going into the very place where the drama of the gospel is worked out on a daily basis. Because in the temple is where you had the sacrifices, right? This visual display of sin and mercy and justice. Morning and evening there were sacrifices, with multiple sacrifices throughout the day. It was also the place, as I mentioned several times, of God's presence, right? When the temple was dedicated, God's Shekinah glory came and sat right there on it. But it was also this place, I think, in a sense that maybe Asaph understands even more than we do, where when you went, when you went to it, you encountered the people of God sharing the praises of God and declaring the works of God. So he walks into the temple as a court musician in the temple, and he hears the people singing the promises of God. He hears the priests speaking the words of God. He sees the sacrifices that are demonstrating the salvation plan of God. He's putting himself in that place where in the midst of all his crisis of faith, he's encountering the message of truth and hope. It seems really hard, I think, as Christians to, when we get to that low point, to go into a place like that, right? Like, when you're that, when you're that low, you don't want to read your Bible, you don't want to pray, you don't want to even sometimes come to church. But it's really important that we have each other in those moments, that we're willing to come into the sanctuary. And so preaching the gospel to yourself actually always becomes preaching the gospel to other people. It's, it's never, it's, it's really never one or the other. You can't do one without the other. All right. So Asaph receives a correction then. In verses 18 through 22, he gets a correction regarding the wicked, right? That God sets them in slippery places. It's kind of ironic, right? This is the same thing he worried about for himself in verse 1, but now we're seeing it with the wicked in verse 18. He says that they're destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. And the imagery in verse 20 is that they're so transient, they're gone so quickly, it's like when you wake up in the morning and you can't even remember what you dreamed about, which is a beautiful image, that all the suffering, all the evil in this world is going to fade that quickly. He also receives a revelation about himself, right? In verses 21 and 22, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. He understands that his heart was living in sin and that because of his sinful heart, his thinking was skewed, which is really interesting, right? There's this connection that we often don't acknowledge between how we live our lives or where our heart is morally and where our thinking is rationally. 
right? Those aren't actually two separate things. Like, what you believe about goodness and justice and truth influences how you live your life and how you think about the world. Lastly, um, or not lastly, next, um, God gives Asaph this revelation concerning the righteous in relationship to Asaph kind of being this example of the righteous. So in verses 23 through 26, he realizes that God has never left him. He's been guided. He's been protected. He's been counseled. And the imagery here, again, is really beautiful, right? It's like when you're walking down the street and you're with your child and you're holding their hand, that's the way God is to us. I remember one time, so we, backing up, we live across from Druid Hill Park, um, and we have to cross a, like a six-lane street to get in there. And I remember one time trying to cross, and as soon as we stepped out, and there was traffic coming, as soon as we stepped out across quickly, my daughter fell down. But I had her hand. And so she didn't really fall all the way. Sometimes, as Christians, we have that experience too, right? We have that sensation like we're falling, and it's a genuine sensation. It's a genuine experience that we're falling, but God has you. So one of the things I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, is that because God is holding your hand, you're never more secure in God tomorrow than you are today. That's what preaching the gospel means to yourself in a sense, just reminding yourself of that, that no matter how loud your experience shouts at you, that God seems distant or far away, he's holding your hand. It's good for you to be near him. In this regard, Asaph also gets a sense of the revelation about the end of the righteous, that though the wicked are destroyed, the righteous have an eternal possession. That though the wicked have this transient, ephemeral, passing away, wisp of the wind, vapory kind of wealth, the righteous have a wealth that never goes away because it's God himself. He doesn't pass. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lastly, in all this, interweaved, obviously, is a revelation about God himself to Asaph, which we can just sum up with saying God loves his people and God is in control of all things. There's nothing prohibiting him from being able to step in. There's nothing, think of it this way, there is no action or activity or circumstance in your life that is not God's love. I think we often say to ourselves, God, God, is, God, God loves me in spite of what's going on. And when we preach the gospel to ourselves, like Asaph does here, what we're saying to us, it's not just that God loves me in spite of what's going on. God is loving me through what's going on. Like Asaph would have never ended up in this place of this deeper understanding about himself, about his world, about God, if he hadn't gone through that really difficult experience of acknowledging the prosperity of the wicked, that emotional conflict, that difficulty. So the conclusion that he gives in 27 and 28 is that there will be justice, right? The wicked will perish. The righteous will be rewarded. And that he's going to persevere in faith. He's going to hold on. There's a great quote I came across about this um, from C.S. Lewis, who's an author that I, I really have benefited a lot from. And 
I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he basically says, the cause of Satan is never in more danger than when a person, no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, in other words, being in that place where it's really hard to do what you know you're supposed to do because your feelings are shouting at you that, that God isn't good or he doesn't love you or he's not in control, but you do it anyway. So no longer desiring but still intending to do God's will, that person looks round upon a universe from which it seems every trace of him has vanished. And he even asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's what puts the kingdom of darkness back on its heels. But it's hard. And I think we need to acknowledge that, that it's really hard. Okay, so I've spent a lot of time going through the text, and you're probably like, he's going to take forever now going through the rest. Um, This is going to be a really long message. But I want you to hold on, because I think we've covered a lot of ground already, and so we can go back and summarize a little bit about what's going on. So let me just get things arranged here. So I want to say now, how does Asaph set an example of here for preaching the gospel to oneself? Or what can we learn about preaching the gospel to ourselves from Asaph? So let's go back to first one, right? Asaph starts with what God has revealed to be true. So we have to start with what God has shown us, shown us to be true, which is the, the tail end of Sunday school that I walked on, in on this morning, right? That we have to know the promises of God. This, this whole experience that Asaph had, which I, I, I really hope you believe with me it was a beneficial experience for him, would have never happened if he hadn't first known that promise that God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. And so also, we can't preach the gospel to ourselves unless we know what it is, right? So that means doing things like being in the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures. But I'll come back to that more later. This gets back to a, a kind of a deeper, more fundamental thing, right, about what I would call presuppositions, because the gospel informs how we look at the world, right? If Asaph hadn't had this view of the world that God rewards the righteous, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, like Hebrews 11 says, then he would have never ended up in this place. So our presuppositions are how we think about it. So I, I tried to write out a simple explanation so that we can all understand, because this is hard for me to understand. And, and I think it's hard for anyone to understand. So he says that, so I'm sorry, what I wrote down that I'm just going to read so to try to be straightforward on it is that a presupposition is like the ground where you are standing to view the horizon. If you're standing on the ground that is right at the foot of a mountain, all you will see is the mountain. You cannot see anything else. No matter how much you bend your neck or stand on your toes, your view is limited by the place where you have planted your feet. Unless you change your position, that is, unless your assumptions change, which would be understanding the promises of the gospel, you cannot change your perspective on what's in front of you. The mountain in your immediate sight may appear insurmountable because of where you are. But if you were able to be in a higher place, you would find that what appears like Mount Everest is only a smaller ridge in a great range that's full of beauty and wonder. Our presuppositions about God and man will limit our ability to see insomuch as they are not defined by truth which we receive from God. We must stand on the heights of God's revelation if we are to have any hope of making sense of the universe before us. That's where Asaph starts. Two, He contrasts the truth with the uncertainties of his own experience. So if we're going to preach the gospel ourselves, we must be willing to honestly confront what feels like incongruities between our faith and and our experience. This may be incongruities about the fact that we don't really feel like the people of God. 
that we can come like a, to a place like this and we feel like the person that's not invited to the party? Like, have you ever had that feeling come to church, when you come to church? Like, you get here and you're, you're kind of like, yeah, I got the invitation, but I don't really feel like I fit in. You feel like you're off in the corner. Or sometimes, maybe you're just in that really hard place, right? Where you can't pay your electric bill, where you're going back for another hit, where you've lost your job, your professional life seems out of control. We have to be willing to go into that dark place of that incongruity, that where that, the round peg of our experience just doesn't seem to fit in that square hole of God's promise. And when we do this, I think it's really important that we learn from Asaph that we should be specific and really upfront about it. Because he's, he's kind of, like, like I said earlier, he's brutally honest. He talks about his personal sin, envy. He talks about the sins of others, pride and arrogance. He talks about the injustice of the world, that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. He talks about his own sense of despair. Like, God knows these things. His Holy Spirit is, is in us groaning with these things when we can't even give them words. And so we should be forthright with God. That's how we get to that point of recognizing that we need the gospel, right? One commentator put it this way, we will seek nothing from God but what we are conscious of wanting in ourselves. So he goes from starting with what God has revealed to be true and then being, sorry, then contrasting that truth with the uncertainties of his own experience and then seeking out God's revelation by going to the sanctuary. We have to trust God for a response to his word and his people and his spirit. Preaching the gospel to yourself means believing that there are answers that God can give you even when it feels like God has utterly forsaken you, that he hasn't really abandoned you. It's holding on to specific promises, like Asaph comes to in the end, that you hold my right hand, that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Um, it was actually really interesting that Nick read Romans 6 this morning because I went through a really hard time in college, and I actually, during that time, memorized most of Romans 6 because I was struggling with sin in my life. I was struggling with the feeling that God had abandoned me, and I had to come back time and time again to Romans 6. That what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died still live in it? I had to be reminded that we're united with Christ in a death like his so that we might be raised in a resurrection like his and that we, we in a sense, have already been raised to walk in newness of life. So we have to go to what God's word, which is the place of revelation. We have to go among God's people to hear us sing and speak these promises to each other so that God can use the spirit to speak through my brother to me. That's often how God works, right? Sometimes, God speaks to me about a problem in my life by using my brother. And that can be really painful and hard, but it's, it's, that is the community of faith. All right. Lastly, preaching the gospel to ourselves means responding in worship. So Asaph receives revelation and he responds with worship. He gets to that place where he's able to glory where previously there was just despair. You know, it just pops into my mind as I'm saying this, though, that we should be a little careful because the despair was worship too. Like, it was just as worshipful to be in that dark place as it is now to be in this bright place of some of the things making sense. That's worship. Both of them are equally worship. And we should remember that. 
But I think there is this sense in which when we understand the gospel and how it applies to our lives, we're taken into a joy. We're reminded that Christ is our abiding possession and all our abundance and all we will ever need. Um, I, I've been reading a, a book over the past several months slowly um, by an old theologian called Augustine who is responding to the situation in the Roman Empire when basically there's this huge political collapse. It's, it's the time when the Roman Empire died, took its last few breaths, and nobody really knows what to do. Everybody's blaming the Christians. He quotes a common phrase from the day. He says basically, everybody on the street says, no rain, blame the Christians. Right? That was the attitude. And so Augustine's responding to this saying basically like, no, that's not true. But also how do we encourage ourselves as Christians? And he actually, it was striking. He goes to this passage, Psalm 73, and he has this to say about Asaph. Asaph is reproaching himself and is rightly displeased with himself because when he had such a great good in heaven, in other words, when he had such a wonderful treasure in heaven, he sought something merely transitory, that is passing, going away, ending, from his God on earth. And I love this image, a fragile happiness, made as it were from mud. The psalmist then, sell, say, uh, the psalmist then says that God himself is his portion. Not something from God. In other words, not some gift from God. Not something other than God. Not just material wealth or prosperity, but God himself. God of my heart, he says, and my portion forever. And then he sums it up, Augustine sums it up this way. He says, among all the things that are chosen by men, it is his pleasure to choose God himself. That's where we come back to when we preach the gospel to ourselves. All right, so I know I'm going through a lot, and I hope I'm not, like, overwhelming. Um, so let's bring this down to a couple applications then. I think this is manifestly or very clearly applicable to our lives with where we're at, but I want to step back and make a couple just very blatant applications, that one, this reminds us that we need to study and know the promises of God, like I mentioned. We need to be in our Bibles. We need to be in the Word. We need to be memorizing. We need to be in the sanctuary, sitting under preaching, sitting under music. We need to be in each other's lives, speaking truth and grace and love. Number two, the good news of Jesus Christ, this matters because the good news of Jesus Christ gives us the freedom to acknowledge the sufferings of our world, both in ourselves and in others. I think this one's hugely important. And I, I know I've, I, I may be just uh, hitting this too many times during this message, but it's so important that we are face-to-face -face with the evil that's in the world. I grew up in a culture where often, unfortunately, I think people tended to go into their own subculture so they didn't have to deal with the evils of the world, where Christianity kind of formed its own separate enclave, or home, and it was very us and you. But I think that through the gospel, we have the opportunity to be dual citizens, like Peter talks about in the New Testament, that we can be citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but also citizens of Baltimore. And that means we're willing to engage in the suffering around us, the suffering of what it means to be a person that lives in Baltimore, whether we're black or white, rich or poor, enfranchised, disenfranchised, Number three, also really important when we understand the gospel and why this matters is that the good news of Jesus Christ gives us the freedom to boldly name and confess our sins. 
when we preach the gospel to ourselves, we're not beating ourselves up. I, that's, that's the thing I don't want you to take away. If you have a sensitive conscience today, and you think every time you hear me say the phrase that the good news of Jesus Christ means this, that that equals guilt and shame, then I would love to talk with you. Or, or I'm sure anyone in this church would love to talk with you because it doesn't. It actually liberates you to be really honest and frank with God, right? Because God already knows, right? If we really believe he's all-powerful and all-knowing, he already knows every sin you've ever done. And he knows how worse it is, how terrible it is in a way that is worse than you know, right? Lastly, something I want us to understand about this and why this matters is that preaching the gospel to ourselves matters because we're always listening to some good news that promises redemption, right? There, there isn't this place where we can just block out all the noise. There isn't this place where we can just put our hands on our head and pretend we don't hear anything. There's always some good news being preached to you. There's always something that you are receiving in your life as a promise of redemption. And I think often we just don't see it. It may be, um, I'll use a personal example. For me, I think sometimes it is the promise of productivity. That through productivity and getting a lot done, I can get redemption. Like, and if I can, and, and then when I'm not productive, I, re- I feel really terrible about myself. But that's because I'm putting my, my hope in, in the wrong place. So maybe for you, that, that message that you're hearing is a promise that, you know, if, if only the right person is in power, or if, if only the, the extra check comes through, or if only I can, I can break that glass ceiling, Right? And, and I want to clarify that these can be very good things. Like, it's good to be productive. It's good to reach new heights. But I think they, they often displace the gospel for us. And we need to be willing to, to look into that and see it. Because if we don't, if we don't acknowledge it, then we're going to put our faith in something that doesn't save So keep preaching the gospel to yourself so you don't fall into that trap. All right. Um, I think by way of kind of segueing into closure, one of the things that has been really helpful for me in this over the past few years was something that actually a pastor said in passing, but I thought was extremely thoughtful. And that is that he said that God gives us grace like he gave the Israelites manna. Enough for each day. Right? Like the Israelites only got enough manna to get them through the day, and then they had to collect it again in the morning. And if they got too much, it spoiled. That's preaching the gospel to yourself, is knowing that God's going to give you enough grace for today, and tomorrow he's going to do the same thing. That his mercies are new every morning. So I, I know that's not like a five-point plan necessarily of what it means to preach the gospel to itself. I know it was a fire hose. I, I'm, I'm the kind of person who writes out a message and then starts like cutting stuff like vigorously because I always have too much to say. Um, but my heart for you, especially as we transition into a time of communion, is that you get to the place where every day you're being refreshed by the grace of the gospel, whether it's in that moment of despair you're in or whether it's being brought into that moment of joy. And that as a body, 
We're able to do that with each other, to point each other into that, to sit in the darkness sometimes with one another and share in that suffering, but also to share in the joy. I'm mindful of the fact that as we go into communion, communion is also us preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? This is my body broken for you. It was broken because of us, right? That's our sin. Like, we crucified the Son of God. But it was also broken for us. This is grace. This is receiving all the abundance of what it means to be united with Christ and his death and resurrection. In fact, the sacraments, that's what they are. It's reminding ourselves that we are partakers in this good news. I should stop because I'll just keep going if I, if I don't stop. So let me close in prayer and um, just direct our hearts into a time of um, sharing in the body and blood of Christ. God, thank you that you take broken messages, incomplete words, difficult experiences like Asaph's, hard times, empty bank accounts, moments of spiritual failure and sin, and turn them all into opportunities for us to be reminded of your grace and your goodness and your love. God, I pray now that as we take this bread and drink this cup, that we would find healing in that Christ was broken that we might be filled up because Christ was poured out. That we might be made whole because Christ was shattered on that cross. I pray that we might know afresh and with a new sense of clarity and delight what it means to be united with Christ and his death and his resurrection. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you, Father and Son. May we worship you in all things. In Christ's name, amen.